Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of April 12th from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff tonight. I'm going to begin by reading a, uh, a news blurb from our website, countervortex.org. Houthis deport last of the Yemeni Jews, dated April 7th. The Houthi rebels, who control much of Yemen's north, including the capital Sana'a, last week deported 13 Jews from three families, effectively ending the millennia-old Jewish community in the country. The group was reportedly transferred to Egypt as part of a deal to free Jewish prisoner Levi Salam Marabi, who has been held by Houthi authorities for over four years. One of the 13 deported Jews told the London-based Arabic international newspaper, Ashark al-Awsat, quote, They gave us a choice between staying in the midst of harassment and keeping Salam a prisoner or having him released. History will remember us as the last of Yemeni Jews who were still clinging to their homeland until the last moment. We had rejected temptations time and time again and refused to leave our homeland. But today, we are forced. End quote. While some reports claim the group of 13 were the last Jews in Yemen, others stated that a handful may remain. Among those is certainly Marabi, who is believed to remain in prison in spite of the supposed deal for his release. Marabi was arrested by the Houthi militia for allegedly assisting a Jewish family in removing a centuries-old Torah scroll from the country. A group of Yemeni Jews who emigrated to Israel in 2016 apparently brought the scroll with them and presented it to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu when they were invited to meet with him. Press photos of Netanyahu inspecting the scroll evidently angered the Houthis, who said the artifact had been smuggled out of the country illegally. Marabi was sentenced to a lengthy prison term by a Houthi court for his supposed role in the removal of the scroll. Reports over the years indicate that he has been subjected to torture and left partially paralyzed by a stroke. In November 2020, shortly before the end of his term in office, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo issued a press release saying, quote, The United States stands with the Yemeni Jewish community in calling for the immediate and unconditional release of Levi Salah Musa Marabi, end quote. The Jewish presence in Yemen dates back thousands of years, but the majority of the country's Jewish community, some 45,000, were brought to Israel in the so-called Operation Magic carpet airlift in 1948. The Israeli operation followed local riots in which scores of Jews were killed. The country's Jewish community had dwindled to some 200 when a new wave of pogroms sparked a second exodus beginning 12 years ago. Since they took over Sana'a in 2014, the Houthis have been pressuring the few Jews still remaining in the country to leave. Once again, that is a uh, news digest of the type that I write every day, 
from uh, countervortex.org dated April 7th. Now, I know that this can seem a small thing amid all of the horrors in the news from Yemen. Massive aerial bombardment by Saudi Arabia and its allies, backed by the United States, and a humanitarian crisis of massive proportions. But nonetheless, I find this story truly heartbreaking, and not least because the end of the millennia-long Jewish presence in Yemen makes Yemen poorer. And this, to me, really points up the tragedy of Zionism. Before the creation of the State of Israel, there were thriving Jewish communities throughout the Islamic world, from Afghanistan to Iraq to Syria, straight across to Morocco. And today, they are rapidly dwindling and disappearing. And there has been both a, um, a push and a pull dynamic, which has led to this exodus ever since 1948. And the push, of course, is persecution and pogroms, that is to say, organized mass violence and massacres. And the, uh, the pull has been, of course, Israeli propaganda, that, you know, there should be an ingathering of the Jews on this little piece of real estate between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and that there is no security for Jews outside of this little piece of real estate, and the Jews have a responsibility to make aliyah, that is, to migrate to Israel. And this push-and-pull dynamic by no means ended in 1948, because it is still happening today. Each of the serial Israeli bombing campaigns in Gaza that we've seen over the past several years has sparked retaliatory attacks on Jews in the diaspora. So I submit that Zionism, the ideology and program of a Jewish state in historic Palestine, is not only bad for the Palestinians, which is obvious, it's also, in the final analysis, bad for the Jews. So that's what I have to say that's going to make you anti-Zionist listeners happy. Some of the other things I have to say you won't be so happy about. Forewarned. Okay, a little bit of historical background here, which I uh, mostly gleaned from a really, really excellent book, one of my favorite books, with unfortunately a uh, rather embarrassing and problematic title, Jewish Communities in Exotic Places by Ken Blady, published by uh, Jason Aronson Press in uh, Jerusalem and Northvale, New Jersey, back in the year 2000. So, uh, okay, it was 21 years ago now that it was published, but still, I mean, uh, the word exotic, I think, was kind of outdated and embarrassing even then, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> inherently Eurocentric. Uh, Ken Blady should have known better. But nonetheless, he's written a really, really great book uh, telling the whole story in great historical detail of, uh, you know, the Jewish communities in Persia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Kurdistan, North Africa, etc. 
and uh, Central Asia. And his first chapter is entitled From the Land of Frankincense and Mer, the Jews of Yemen. Yemen, which was in ancient times known for the, uh, <clears throat> the production of those fragrances and was uh, a prosperous stop on the uh, international trade routes of the day. It was known as, um, to the ancient Romans, as Felix Arabia, or Happy Arabia. Somewhat sadly ironic, given that things are not very happy in Yemen today, unfortunately. But it was, um, it was fertile, and it was prosperous in ancient times, unlike the rest of the peninsula, which is mostly desert. So it was known to the Romans as Happy Arabia. And the, uh, the Jewish presence in Yemen dates back something like 3,000 years, going all the way back to um, the Queen of Sheba and her famous dealings with, uh, with King Solomon. Yemen was at that time, as at various times in its history, ruled from Ethiopia, or Abyssinia, as it then was. And uh, the Jews constituted a um, respected and prosperous part of society of what is now Yemen in ancient times. There was even a, um, a Jewish dynasty that ruled over a large area of what is today Yemen in the 6th century, just uh, a few score of years before the coming of Islam, the Himyarite dynasty. Their uh, leaders converted to Judaism, and there was actually a, a Jewish dynasty in Yemen for a period of some generations. Islam arrived when what is today Yemen was conquered by the armies of the Prophet Muhammad, and initially the Jews there were protected on the orders of Muhammad and revered as people of the book, or dini, and it was recognized that they worshipped the same God and were ultimately of the same tradition as the Muslims, and continued to hold a secure place in society, at least. But, of course, as is the case all over the world, the Jews would be persecuted in periods of crisis. And the next several centuries of Yemen's history would be um, characterized by a struggle between the Zaydis, who were followers of a um, Shiite sect, which vied for control of the territory with the Sunni Caliphate and its um, local rulers, who were loyal to the Sunni Caliphate. Now, these are, um, the Zaydis are so-called Fiver Shiites, as opposed to the Ismaili or Sevener Shiites, or the mainstream Twelver Shia, which is the um, state religion of Iran. Now, this all has to do with how many imams are recognized as the successors to, um, to the Prophet Muhammad. Mainstream Shia recognizes 12, the Ismailis recognize 7, and the Zaydis recognize 5. And as the party which was generally out of power, the uh, Zaydis played to Puritanism and, you know, baited the Sunni rulers of the territory as soft on the infidel Jews. Although they, of course, themselves, the Zaydis, were stigmatized as heretics by the Sunni orthodoxy. So during those periods when the Zaydis managed to, uh, you know, get the upper hand, the Jews uh, faced persecution, their homes and property uh, were confiscated, their synagogues destroyed, and sometimes they were driven out of the territory altogether. 
The uh, Turkish Ottoman Empire took over in the 16th century, which opened centuries of war between the Zaydis and the Ottomans for control of the territory. And again, in those periods and areas where the Zaydis had control, the Jews generally had it pretty bad. And in those periods and areas where the Ottomans had control, they generally had it okay. Although there were also periods where the Ottomans um, placed harsh restrictions on the rights of the Jews in order to appease the Zaydis and try to buy peace with the Zaydis. As a brief aside, I'm going to mention that in the 1830s, the British established the port of Aden as a protectorate, which um, eventually expanded into the colony of South Yemen, which they, the Brits, continued to hold all the way until the 1960s, long after North Yemen had become independent from the Turks after the First World War, thereby setting the stage for, of course, war between the two, between North and South Yemen, another legacy which is still haunting Yemen today. And the North and South were not united until 1990. And uh, the North basically absorbed the South in the peace deal that was worked out at the time. And now the people of the South are starting to get restive and have revived a separatist movement which threatens to be yet a second conflict, um, a regional conflict, which is sort of superimposed on the sectarian conflict, which has been tearing the country apart for the past several years. But I'm getting ahead of myself, because we should uh, <clears throat> make note of, uh, of course, that critical year, 1948, when the uh, travails of the Yemeni Jews were exploited by the Zionists to populate the nascent state of Israel and uh, lord to make aliyah and serve as, uh, you know, demographic cannon fodder for the Zionist project. That was the pull factor. The push factor was, of course, that uh, in response to the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, pogroms broke out in Yemen that year, in which Jews were massively attacked by their Arab neighbors. That was the push factor. What makes it all particularly ironic is that upon arriving in Israel, the Yemeni Jews were seen as backward and primitive, as, you know, a, a dark-skinned Arabic-speaking people. That's how they were viewed by the, uh, the Ashkenazic elite of Israel, that is to say, the European Jewish elite, who basically ran the country. And they faced discrimination in Israel, despite the fact that their culture was actually much closer to that of the ancient Hebrews than was that of the dominant Ashkenazim. And they were at the bottom of the social pyramid in Israel, or close to the bottom of the social pyramid, because really there's kind of a three-rung system in Israel, of course. You've got the Ashkenazim at the top, despite the fact that today they're a minority. Back then they were probably the majority. Today they're, they're a minority. They're still basically at the top of the social pyramid. The strata below them is the uh, the Mizraki, that is to say, the uh, Jews of the Eastern world, Arab Jews and Persian Jews, and so on. And then at the bottom, of course, you have the Arabs, the Palestinian, the native Palestinian population, and the Bedouins. Maybe you could even consider it to be a, a four-rung system with the Bedouins at the very bottom. But in any event, the uh, the Yemeni Jews definitely um, faced discrimination and persecution. In Israel, ironically, children were separated from their parents and given to uh, Ashkenazic couples for adoption. 
you know, they uh, worked the, the lowest paying jobs, you know, field hands and stuff like that. <clears throat> and uh, very interestingly, in the 1960s, the late 1960s, there was a, um, a Black Panther movement in Israel, directly inspired by the Black Panther movement in the United States, but made up of um, Mizrahi Jews, including Yemeni Jews, protesting their um, second-class status in Israeli society. This is kind of forgotten history, unfortunately. It has to be said that today the uh, Mizrahi Jews have largely gone over to the right because the ruling right-wing Likud party has successfully wooed them, harnessing their um, resentment and um, linking it to antipathy to secularism. <clears throat> Another very sad reality. And now this cycle is coming around again in Yemen, because over the past 15 years, Sunni extremists linked to al-Qaeda and so on, and the Houthi insurgents have both started to, you know, threaten the Yemeni state. The Houthis are named for the, uh, the dominant tribe in the movement, and they are followers of Zaidi Shia. Uh, they uh, began mounting an insurgency, ultimately becoming much more powerful than the than the Sunni extremists, who also mounted an insurgency. <clears throat> the Sunni extremists mostly in South Yemen, the Houthis mostly in North Yemen, and complicating it even more is that a lot of, um, if you actually look at a map, the bulk of what is called South Yemen is actually further to the north than what is called North Yemen. <laughs> Just to make things a little more confusing. But that's because uh, most of that territory is very sparsely inhabited. The area around Aden is to the south of um, Sana'a and North Yemen. But uh, South Yemen also incorporated the Hajramut, which is, uh, you know, mountains and desert and very sparsely populated going up the coast from Aden, up the, uh, the coast of the Arabian Sea. So uh, <clears throat> in 2014, the Houthis took the capital Sana'a, which uh, prompted Saudi Arabia and its Gulf state allies to intervene uh, er, militarily. Iran has been backing the Houthis, and it's turned to a large degree into a proxy war, bringing us to the horrific situation in the country today. And again, in this cycle, this historical cycle going, all, going back centuries, the system goes into crisis and the Jews are persecuted. And now, if these most recent reports are to be believed, the Jewish presence in Yemen, which goes all the way back to biblical times, goes all the way back to the time of the Queen of Sheba, has come to an end. And if there are any Jews in the country left at all, it's certainly well under 100. And this is the kind of thing that I try to write about on my website, cover stories that nobody else is covering. You know, it, it just, uh, it's extremely demoralizing how little attention this got. Obviously, it didn't get no attention or else I wouldn't know about it, because I'm not in Yemen. This is not first-hand journalism. I do some first-hand journalism, but this was not first-hand journalism. This was bloggery, writing a digest from secondary sources. So it got some coverage, but very, very little. And mostly the regional press, the Arabic-language press, and the international Jewish press, not the, you know, so-called mainstream media. And I have... Uh, and I have just five things that I would like to briefly say about this tragic development and what the likely responses to it are going to be by us progressives in the West, or more to the point, 
the complete lack of response to this by us progressives in the, in the West. The first of my five points. <clears throat> One, our opposition to the U.S.-backed Saudi war in Yemen cannot be based on the notion that the Houthis aren't so bad after all, because yes, they are. Thank you very much. And in opposing the Saudi war, which we must, and particularly opposing U.S. support for the Saudi war, which we must, we can't be drawn into what's called campism and rooting for the Houthis because they're in the rival camp, and that our support should be for civil society, the besieged pro-democratic forces which continue to exist, and ethnic minorities who are getting a uh, you know hard time of it from both sides, which in this particular case certainly includes the Jews and, and other, you know, uh, <coughs> minority, as it were, getting a hard time from both sides, of course, would be secularists and atheists. So I'm going to say regarding Yemen, as I've been saying for years, regarding Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, etc., that our job as progressives in the West is to find and identify our natural allies on the ground and attempt to build ties of solidarity with them, as opposed to favoring one of the warring parties. Now, sometimes there is a time for favoring one of the warring parties. Certainly, when the uh, Kurds were fighting ISIS in northern Syria, I was unequivocally on the side of the Kurds. But the Saudi coalition versus the Houthis, that's one of those times when it's really appropriate to say a pox on both your houses. Point number two. No, this was not a Mossad false flag operation. <laughs> That's always the knee-jerk response. Jews are attacked anywhere in the world, and every idiot on social media has got to say it was a Mossad false flag operation. The Jews attacking their own to try to win sympathy. Now, there's been a lot of speculation that this kind of thing uh, actually did happen in, um, in 1948 and the years immediately afterward, where, you know, um, Israeli agents actually did try to um, instrument attacks on Jews in places like Yemen and Egypt and so on to try to, you know, exacerbate the push factor, as it were. And I don't dismiss the possibility that some of that happened. But it was a question of exacerbating, not creating the push factor. And it's ridiculous to deny that there actually were, you know, spontaneous pogroms against Jews in places like Yemen in reaction to the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, which was happening at that same time. There's nothing which is all, at all improbable about that. And there is nothing to suggest that the, uh, you know, the current uh, persecution and expulsion and push factor, which is driving the last of the Jews from Yemen, was, uh, you know, intentionally inflamed by Israel. And that is, quite frankly, an anti-Semitic trope. Which brings us to point three, another knee-jerk reaction, which we always get, which is the line that Arabs can't be anti-Semitic because Arabs are Semites too. Now, there are historical reasons that the widespread term for Jew hatred, is anti-Semitism. And if you want the story, you can just Google Wilhelm Marr, 
the 19th century German anti-Semite who invented the term. It wasn't us Jews, thank you very much, who invented the term. And certainly, the ugly stereotypes about Jews in the Western imagination are closely akin to the ugly stereotypes about Arabs. Both of us are supposed to be greedy and malevolent and money-grubbing and eroding of the national sovereignty of Western nations, etc., etc. But anti-Semitism is the term which was invented by European Jew haters for their own ideology. And, uh, you know, the European pseudoscientific racial anti-Semitism, which came up along with that term that we've seen over the past 200 years, obviously grew out of the religious anti-Semitism of Christian political culture in Europe. And also, obviously, there are parallel strains in the political culture of that third monotheistic faith, Islam. So to claim that anti-Semitism doesn't exist because the name for it is inexact is just a dishonest distraction and nothing but. Point number four. Yes, of course, Netanyahu and Pompeo are making hay out of this. What do you expect? It was completely obvious and predictable that that was going to happen. And it says absolutely nothing about the justice of the situation. And in fact, the less solidarity or sympathy that the Yemeni Jews get from anybody else, the more the displaced Yemeni Jews are going to view the Israeli state and Likud and the U.S. State Department as their only allies. So dismissing their plight because they're looking to Likud and the U.S. State Department for succor is utterly counterproductive to any kind of political progress on this question. Which brings us now, finally, to my final point. Point five. If you're going to lecture Jews about how we should give up our aspiration to a state in historic Palestine and just be content with being Polish or Russian or Yemeni or whatever, then you might want to raise a voice of protest when shit like this happens. Just saying. This has been the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Check us out online at countervortex.org. You can read my write-up about what I've been discussing under the headline, Houthis Deport, Last of the Yemeni Jews. Please support us on Patreon if you appreciate what we do. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.